most of us feel that we don't have as much influence as we could or as much as we should because we don't do the things that other people do to try to get influence. In my research, what I find is that although almost everyone wants to be more influential, most people have misgivings about the idea of using influence strategies or especially influence tactics, and they find those greedy and manipulative. So we have mixed feelings about influence, and most people are not like you and me, and many listeners, I'm sure, where we go and pursue knowledge, greater knowledge of influence, because it feels like something that might be a little bit icky. So we'd like to have influence, but we don't so much want to do influence. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question What's holding you back from having the influence that you want? Now quickly just listen to the first thing that comes into your mind right now. It might be a sense that somehow you're not charismatic enough or you're not aggressive enough or maybe the opposite. Maybe you talk too much and you forget to listen and emotionally engage sometimes. So if we usually have a clear idea about the blocks that are holding us back from the influence that we know we're capable of having, what stops us? According to my guest today, Tapping into your true influence superpowers is a bit like learning a new language. We all say that we want it, but very few of us are prepared to go through the discomfort and the awkwardness of becoming fluent. My guest today is Yale professor and superhuman Zoe Chance. Zoe is a writer, teacher, researcher and climate philanthropist. Her best-selling book is called Influence is Your Superpower. She has a doctorate from Harvard and teaches the most popular course in that read. It is totally sold out every year at the Yale School of Management. Her research has been published in top academic journals and covered in global media outlets. She speaks on television and around the world. You can find some of her talks online, highly, highly recommended. And her framework for behavior change is the foundation for Google's global food policy. Within Pretty much the first two minutes of this conversation, I was utterly hooked. We dived headfirst into the heart of why the universe is not designed for our pleasure. Shock horror, I know. And what that exactly has to do with how we influence ourselves and, as we both discovered, the wiring of our children. The difference between our alligator mind and our judge mind. And yep, you guessed it, why it is always wise to win over the alligator first. Why you should focus on changing someone's behavior and not their mind. I'll say that again. Why you should always focus on changing someone's behavior and not their mind. 
you know, that this one was so counterintuitive to me and a definite game changer in how I now approach situations where I need to persuade. We talk about the main misconceptions about what it takes to be a person of influence. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, you will know that this is one of my favorite soapboxes, including why everybody says that they want to be more charismatic, but no one can ever really ever tell you what that means. Finally, how she is dealing with her own influence blocks right now. And believe me, the further you go on your influence journey, it doesn't matter where you are on the peak of where you're trying to get to, the more upper limits you are going to encounter and the better tools you are going to need to employ to get past them. My biggest takeaway was what Zoe calls the magic question of influence. Honestly, this question is so simple, it's kind of almost easy to miss its brilliance. And this is the question. What would it take? That's it. So simple, so short, so respectful, so utterly irresistible as an invitation to collaborate to get what you want. Now, if you're a parent listening to this episode with your children in the car, I apologize in advance. You are about to hear that question on loop for the rest of your life and fall for it every single time. But that said, if our intention as parents and leaders is to empower those in our care to use their voice, to stand up for what they deserve and to own the space that they occupy, then you know what? I'm pretty much not sorry at all. Now, for those of you who are ready to take their journey and influence to the next level, don't forget, hop on my website or the show notes, there's a link in there, and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and more importantly, the seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your own level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will land in your inbox in the time it takes to whistle a tune. On that note, stride on, drive safe, sink in and enjoy the power of the incredible Zoe Chance. Welcome to the podcast, Zoe Chance. Such a such a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Thank you. Julia, I'm excited to talk with you because I feel like you and I are very like-minded in the work that we do. <laughs> do you know, it's funny you say that because when I was doing my research and I was reading your book and I was watching some of your videos, the amount of times I wrote in my notes, yes, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> so in so many ways and I want to get into in many of those today and actually you know it's also good to speak to the fact that you you really challenged my thinking like your book and some of your ideas really challenged my thinking in certain ways and I want to get to those parts too so but before we begin I'm going to kick off with the the same way I usually kick off the podcast which is to ask the question what's one idea that's really had a huge impact on you recently and it can be an idea from your own work it can be tried and true um it can be new but is there one idea that's just kind of stuck with you recently i'm gonna take a risk here and go really personal and woo woo <laughs> and please the- <laughs> great um i don't know if this ever happens to you but for me like every six months to year or so i will get an actual voice in my head that I hear as a literal thing, and I have no idea where this voice comes from, but it it feels like it's from outside myself. And 
this was a few weeks ago, I was in my head complaining about something. I was annoyed at some stupid bureaucratic thing that I had to do and I shouldn't have had to spend this time. I was so frustrated. And then this voice in my head, this low voice says, Zoe, this world was not created for your benefit. And that has stuck with me and I keep going back to it and I keep thinking about how, wow, when I am passing judgment, it's so egotistical. It is from the perspective that the world really obviously was created for my benefit. So if I'm not benefiting, then there's a failure. And this was solidified for me, sunk in even more over the weekend when, so for you it's summer, for me it's winter, and I just took my daughter skiing this weekend. We're coming back from a wonderful day skiing and we're driving back during the sunset. And the sunset is so nice. But my 14 year old daughter looks at the sunset and she's like, hey mom, look, the sun is setting. It's pretty nice. It's like six out of 10, not the greatest ever. <laughs> But it's pretty good. And of course, she's my daughter. So where does she get this? It has to be from, you know, her parents. And it was the same perspective, like the sunset, which had been created for her benefit, wasn't living up to her expectations. So that's something I'm personally struggling with. It's really interesting you say that because I had, I literally had a, a long conversation with my daughter about that this weekend and she's a lot younger she's six and um and we were talking about it, it, a few things that happened in a row and it culminated as it always does on a you know on a sidewalk near where we live it's always in public when things culminate and she was upset she was getting something that she really wanted and she was upset about the fact that she wasn't getting it you know in exactly the way that she wanted it at exactly the time that she wanted it. she had to walk to get to it she really did not want to walk and, you know, we had this big kind of confrontation on the on the pavement. And I said, you know what, this is not, you know, you don't get to decide how things happen. You just get to be grateful, the fact that they happen at all, or that they have the opportunity for happening. And I was walking away and I was thinking exactly the same thing. You know, you've got on this big high horse as a parent. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, hang on. Oh no, that was a mirror. <laughs> she's, just, she's just reflecting back at me exactly what she has seen me do. You know, I am the largest influence in her life right now, myself and my husband. She spends more time with us than anybody else. Chances are, this came from me. Yeah, it's and so embarrassing. It is, isn't it? It isn't parenting or leading, you know, leading small humans is a more direct mirror and a louder mirror. But leading anybody, you know, it's just so humbling and embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Julie, can I ask you from being on the parallel path that I see it to the one that I'm on, um, when you are helping people become more influential, do you see that as a path of personal development? Oh, very much. Very, very much. It's funny, I was in a room I was in the room of top executives yesterday. I was just thinking about that when I was going through my notes today. And there was 10, 10 I'd been asked by the organization to come in. I'd been given a bit of a challenge and said, you know, you've got these top leaders. They need to start standing up and influencing 200 to 300 people at a time. Um, you've got 36 hours with them. What do you, like, what do you want to do? And it's amazing 
how much of what you need to do in my own journey and when you're trying to facilitate a journey for other people is mindset. You know, it's amazing how much of it is, is moving the blocks. Like you, you know, as I was saying to them, you, you've been chosen to be here. You are an expert in your field. You have more than enough experience, stories, stats, case studies, proven, you know, proven results to, you know, sink a ship. And yet, you know, the only thing that, it, you know, you're at the threshold right now. I was talking about the threshold. You're at this threshold right now. And the only thing that's going to move you through that threshold is you choosing to step into it and get rid of anything that's in your way that's stopping you, any story that is stopping you from stepping into that right now. And I think that it is, and it has been very much in my life, and I don't know, I'd love to hear your experiences. But for for me, it's been more a process of letting go than it has been letting in. You know, letting go of old stories, letting go of beliefs, letting go of something you heard once, something you've come to believe. And, you know, letting in new information and new skills, absolutely, but probably more so letting go. How's that been for you? Because, again, one of my questions, and we'll go straight there, is, you know, you're on this journey right now, and I could really feel that for you. You know, you, you've got the book, and it's come out, and you're doing all of this publicity, and I know you've spoken on stages many, many times in the past before the book. How's this journey been for you, getting out there more, using your voice in a more public forum? It is exhausting. <laughs> it it's you know a a roller coaster of it's such a blessing. It's so incredible to get to go all around the world and travel and meet people and get to have more of an imp- get to have the kind of impact that I have been building up to and working toward and I work with a lot of business leaders and then I also work with a lot of people who are in particular working on the climate fighting climate crisis and I love getting to work with groups like tomorrow I'll be with a group of government executives who are working on cybersecurity and anybody who has a mission that is helpful in some way to the world I'm excited to help them be more influential and the teaching part of it the speaking part of it the conversations this is all stuff that I love but even though what I teach is interpersonal influence and This is what I've been doing full-time for a year since my book came out one year ago. When it comes to just practicing every day, full-time interpersonal influence to do the book promotion stuff that feels self-promotional, just like anyone else, I get really exhausted and I need to take a break. So I got totally depleted and in January, I needed to step away and just go to a beach resort and sit in a chair near the water. I don't even really like to swim and just read for five days straight and just read books and have somebody bring me food. So I think it's really helpful for me to have this personal experience of remembering, yeah, it's really hard. Um, And so many of the people that I'm teaching and working with have that, um, they get to that boundary or that feeling of I'm exhausted and depleted from feeling like I'm promoting myself and my work and my ideas. They reach it before I do. And it's helpful for me to reach that too and have a bit more compassion 
rather than feeling like, yeah, I know you get there, you get through it. Students have called my class at Yale doing uncomfortable things that make you a better person. So I'm always pushing people into their zone of discomfort with the idea of stretching their comfort zone. But that's how we expand it, right? Is we step out of it and it's the only way it gets bigger. So I've definitely reached the limits of my comfort zone this year and I hope that I'm expanding it. I think also, you know, we, we, we think about, you know, there's that imposter syndrome voice that, that you know, we hear a lot about a lot. And the way that I like to think about that is, you know, your imposter syndrome is really just an, an alarm. You know, it's, it's a very reliable alarm system that goes off when you're at the edge, when, you, when you're at that threshold place, you're at the edge of your comfort zone. And it's going to go off every time. It's very reliable. It never goes away. Bad news. It never goes away. Every, you know, you're going to get through this one. There's going to be another one. It's going to go off again. It's going to go off again. Um, but all it really is is telling you that you're on the you're on the the cusp of something really important, the cusp of something really transformational. But what doesn't get talked about in being out of your comfort zone and that alarm going off is how tiring that could be. You know, that's that if you are there permanently for a period of time and there is nothing wrong with that. In fact, shoot for it, run for it have a period of time where you are thoroughly uncomfortable but there needs to be a period of recovery after that because have, being in fight or flight for that long it, at whatever level even if it's just a low baseline is you know it is exhausting it is depleting and you need to stop have a moment of kind of congratulating yourself for everything that you've done and as far as you've come and you know all the new things that you've achieved sit by a pool sit in the woods lock yourself in your bed I don't care lock yourself in your cupboard <laughs> and have have some time to just fill back you know calm that part of your brain down and go okay we did it you know high five us we did it now let's rest and then we'll get to the next threshold but we don't have to we don't have to run there right now let's let's just you know let's celebrate this and years ago my husband and I we kind of ran out of ideas for each other for Christmas and we developed this ritual where every year for Christmas now we give each other five days. You take five days. You take five days, go rest, recover, do what, go take a holiday of what looks like a holiday for you, which, you know, is probably not what looks like a holiday for me because we have very different tastes. And, and I'll do the same. And that gift of recovery, I think, is really, really, really important. Can I just say while while we're on this topic about the path of influence, um, there's so many different places along this path that um, we have an opportunity to expand or deepen our influence. And a lot of people don't recognize the places that don't feel great. But this was coming up for me yesterday when I was doing um, some advisory work, some coaching with a very successful executive who just lost her mom and she's devastated by suddenly losing one of the closest relationships in her life and what we worked on and talked about and what she's now practicing is allowing herself to be in that raw state that um i apologize listeners <laughs> just reporting how we talked about it as the fuck it state of mind where she doesn't care very much about the strategies of becoming more influential at work. She doesn't care as much about her job as she normally cares about it. 
and she she can't be anything except for real and she can be tough she can be loving she can draw boundaries in during this finite window of time where she's incredibly powerful she's incredibly vulnerable and she's incredibly powerful and it's the kind of power that many of us especially women don't get until we're much much older and we get beyond the stage of caring what people think of us but it's so powerful in these moments that can be so difficult for whatever reason that you've gotten to a place where you don't care what people think of you that in addition to whatever got you there being traumatic or anything else it's also a gift so I hope for anyone who's listening right now and you're in that place of just you've hit a wall and you can't care what people think of you right now allow yourself to say the things that you actually think and don't waste this brief period of time you're reminding me i I bumped into someone who used to work for me many years ago and and she worked when she was in her early 20s and she was she was amazing then she's incredible now but she walked into the room so i was in the room she walked in and um something had changed you know, something had shifted in her. There was a gravity. There was an authority. There was, I don't, I can't think of a better language for it, but there was almost a wildness to the energy that she brought into the room. It, it was fierce. She was fierce. And I'd never seen her fierce before. I'd seen her, you know, collegial. I'd seen her collaborating. I'd seen her smart, creative, curious. I had never seen her fierce. And I talked to her afterwards and I said, you know, wow, like you have dropped into something now where you are just magnetic and, you know, I couldn't take my eyes off you. What's, what's going on for you right now? And she said something similar, you know, I'm going through something really big and it's been a really big year and I'm just at that stage where, you know what, I know what I'm talking about. I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of bandwidth. You can listen, you can not. It's totally up to you, but here's what I got. And I get goosebumps. I've got goosebumps thinking about it because it just took her to a level that was more powerful than I had ever seen her. Thank you for that. It's so influential. Mm. Someone said something to me recently, which was just an amazing piece of guidance. They said, you know, you are not the river. You are not the river. You are not the barrage of your of your feelings. You are not... You are, you are the river bank and your only job is to hold and direct whatever energy you're feeling. You are the river bank, hold it and direct it. Don't judge it. Don't try and hold it back. Don't try and damn it. Don't try and just direct it where you want it to go and trust that it'll take you there. So anyway, I could, I could talk to you about this all day. I want, I want to talk about your Yale course just for a second because your MBA course sells out. You know, it's a sellout course. What is it? It just got me thinking, you know, what is it about becoming more influential? You, know, you and I both work in this field that makes us so intrigued. Is it that we don't feel like we have enough influence, um, that there's not enough to go around? You know, what is it that makes us so hungry for this subject? Most of us feel that we don't have as much influence as we could or as much as we should because we don't 
mm, we don't do the things that other people do to try to get influence. In my research, what I find is that although almost everyone wants to be more influential, most people have misgivings about the idea of using influence strategies or especially influence tactics, and they find those greedy and manipulative. So we have mixed feelings about influence, and most of us, most people are not like you and me where we go, and many listeners, I'm sure, where we go and pursue knowledge, greater knowledge of influence, because it feels like something that might be a little bit icky. So we'd like to have influence, but we don't so much want to do influence. And what's the distinction there? Because I noticed, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about it is possible, not only possible, but, you know, very effective to use your own brand of influence. You know, you don't have to influence without, you know, going against your values. You don't have to influence in a way that just doesn't feel right to you. You know, you can be incredibly powerful and persuasive while still being very true to you. What, what, are some of the ways that we can do that? What are some of the ways that we can, you know, pick the tools and the strategies that work for us and make them work for our personalities? It's really challenging to pick the strategies that feel like they work for us and our personalities because we haven't practiced them. And so it's not like you can just try something out and the first time you experience this, you you say, okay, well, that one, it didn't, it didn't really feel right. Like, as an example, I will have students and often executives to do an empathetic listening exercise. And when you do this empathetic listening exercise, you're listening for what are those other person's deeper values that are driving their thoughts and ideas about this thing that maybe you disagree with them about like let's say you and I have a political disagreement it's hard for us potentially to be talking with each other about that but if I'm listening for not just what is it you're saying definitely not just how can I rebut all of those arguments that you have but what are Julie's deep values that have Julie believing in the importance of these arguments that you're making when you first practice listening for values, and I reflect it back, and I say something like, Julie, it sounds like you care a lot about, and whatever this value is so far, it sounds like you care a lot about learning or growth or freedom or connecting with people or family. And then you say, you know, yes or no, or you explain, and we have a conversation the first time you do this exercise, it might feel really awkward, even if it goes well, just because you haven't done it before. And also you might be wrong. It's easy to be wrong, which actually doesn't matter. Because if I say, Julie, it sounds like you care a lot about family. And that's not, let, let, let's say after the conversation about your daughter, the thing that came up for me was, it sounds like you care a lot about family. You, you might tell me, well, I do care a lot about my family, but actually in this particular situation, what stuck with me was more about how I'm teaching my daughter accidentally in a way that I didn't mean to. Like if I got it wrong, you'll explain and it doesn't matter. Whenever we're practicing something new, it's like 
learning to walk for the first time or learning to speak a foreign language, you have to think while you're doing it and before you're doing it and you're thinking about the process and that makes it feel less authentic. So we just can't have the bar be authenticity when we're practicing new kinds of influence strategies. When we've gotten some practice at it and tried it, you know, say two or three times, if you still hate it, just don't do it anymore. <laughs> and it's totally fine. But what's hard is you don't know before you do it. And what I learn hundreds of times every year is that people are terrible at predicting what influence practices will end up being the ones that they want to keep and continue to practice. We're just really bad at it. So all I can say is experiment and keep going. And I love that you, I love that you link that to learning a language there, you know, cause you, you learn a new language, you don't feel authentic. You know, nobody feels authentic when they're trying a language for the first time. You feel like someone who can't speak the language trying a new language. Yeah. And you don't even have your own personality. No, because you, you, you haven't got a feel for the words yet, right? Like you haven't, you're, you're trying them on for the first time. They don't, they don't roll off your tongue. It feels awkward and strange and you feel like someone's going to misinterpret you and you're going to look stupid. But that shouldn't preclude you from learning a new language. You know, if that's, if that's what you do, want to do, if that's the experience of the world that you want to have, someone who can speak multiple languages. I want you, I, this is the first time I've ever said this on the podcast, but I want you to talk to me about alligators. Alligators. <laughs> I've literally never said that line before. Um, alligators and judges and, and the difference between the two and how it relates to influence. For listeners who have any familiarity with behavioral economics, what I'm about to talk about is system one and system two and how it relates to interpersonal influence. For anyone who is new or not very conversant in behavioral economics, doesn't matter. <laughs> you don't need to be familiar. And I'll explain it really quickly with this analogy of the alligator and the judge. The idea is that all of our decisions and behavior are governed by these two mental processes that we can represent as an alligator or a judge. And the first one, system one, is fast, intuitive. It happens automatically, almost without effort and largely subconsciously. And this is a primal system like an alligator lurking below the surface of your conscious awareness. And it's constantly scanning the environment for opportunities and threats. And a key feature of this part of the mind that I think of and discuss is the gator brain is that it is incredibly lazy. And most people don't know about alligators <laughs> that one of their key features is that they're probably the laziest animals on earth. Their body weighs up to 500 kilos, their brain is the size of a walnut, and they can go up to three years without eating anything at all. <laughs> so their dominant response to all of the stimuli in the world is nothing. If you're trying to influence an alligator, the likelihood is that they will not even move. The judge, on the other hand, is the piece of our mind that we're consciously aware of because it's the conscious piece. And this is slow, effortful, deliberative, tries to be rational, tries to make the air quotes right decision. And this is where all of our data and information processing happens. This is where reasoning happens 
but reasoning is an influence process. It's not an objective process in any way. And what happens is because the alligator part is very fast, it's making snap judgments immediately all the time. Things like, um, you know, do I like this? Do I not? Do I want it? Do I not? Do, should I pay attention? Should I not? And all of our social biases and our cognitive biases happen instantaneously with this unconscious part. That piece is vastly more powerful than the judge part and it's faster so it influences the judge's processing. So when the judge is deciding how to weigh the evidence pro and con and make a good, fair, ob objective, again in quotes, decision, the judge doesn't realize how much they've been influenced by the habits and preferences and fears and emotions of the alligator. So when we're trying to influence someone, one of the most important things we can do is to keep in mind that the biggest influence in their thinking and their behavior is this mostly unconscious alligator part that makes snap judgments and is super duper lazy. And then the conscious processing that happens will always have a hypothesis. So it's looking for evidence to support that hypothesis. So you want that piece to be looking for evidence for whatever idea or behavior it is that you're hoping that they will move forward with. So they need to already think it's a good idea before they go into the deeper levels of mental processing to then justify that decision. What you've got me thinking about now is how we, how we do that. You know, so how do we address the emotional part before we go into the information part? And, you know, could be simple. I'm going to put it to you because I don't know. Something as simple as when you're going into a meeting or when you're going into a discussion, you know, starting with starting rather than starting with here's all the information. As you can see, it's compelling. I can imagine there's only one decision you're going to make right now. Yeah, rather than going in with that, going, you know, here and you wouldn't say these words but here are some emotional reasons reasons that are actually going to make you feel something about how this could be how this might feel why we're doing this is that is that a effective way to use this kind of alligator judge principle when it comes to how we interact with other people emotions are within the domain of the gator so this is one way to influence people we don't always have to be connecting with them emotionally, but the emotion, emotional piece of it is why we will have speakers so often beginning with a story, right? Including you and me lots of times. It's also why, um, let's say you're going to give a presentation or have a meeting, and even you and me today, we very often have a small talk piece of it if it's not a formal engagement so that we're connecting personally with one another before then we go into the work. and. Um, it's also, though, true that you don't always need somebody's conscious awareness or conscious decision making to send them in the direction that you're hoping for. So knowing what their habits are already or just making what you're asking or offering as 
easy as possible means you don't have to do this heavy emotional lift. I don't have to tell you a tearjerker story. I can just offer an idea and let you know, and it's going to be really easy. And here's all that it would take. And you don't have to think about it that much. And you can just say, oh, okay, great. Right? What I shouldn't do is overwhelm you with a whole bunch of facts and statistics and data before you're interested in having or reading those facts, statistics, and data. Like um, a market research agency that looked at this question of which is more persuasive, the gator type emotional appeals or judge type rational appeals. They were looking at TV advertising, which matters, but they, they analyzed 1400 ads and then they called the companies that had produced these ads to say how profitable was this for you and they categorized the ads into it was a gator ad more emotional it was a judge ad more fact-based or it was in between mixed and what they found was very dramatically the gator ads were far more persuasive and effective than the judge ads but interestingly me and nerds like us was that when they put both together it was less effective than just the gator ad so this is because people who are watching a tv advertisement are not ready for the facts and the data this is the initial quick early approach where the best thing you can do is connect with them and have them think like oh, that sounds kind of interesting, or oh, that sounds like a good idea. It's not the place where they're going to be rationally analyzing, should I do this thing? And so that's not where you put the data. So just staging things like connecting with their current behavior, with their interests, with their emotions, their maybe a bias that they have, or at least making the information as easy to digest as possible. This is what we do first. And then later, when they're interested, we have, for example, a printed out deck that has all the information that they're looking for. We don't need to deliver that in person. A lot of people think that you need to say all of the facts out of your mouth that you think that they might want to hear, but that's not what they need at all. And I'm just thinking about really busy people, you know, people who are time bandwidth poor, um, you know, to, to begin a conversation with, you know, I got some good news. There's one easy thing we can do. I'm making this up. One easy thing we can do to add a million dollars to the bottom line and just watch them go, okay, what is that? It's this. Um, I've, you know, I've emailed you all the backup. Look at it if you want to look at it in your own time. But, you know, this is one thing we can do to move the needle forward, you know, as a leader, as someone who's led you know, large teams, you're just like, oh, you know, thank you. Okay, green light in eight minutes. <laughs> Let's, I'll look at it. I'm going, you know, I'm Santa Plan. I'll look at it, you know, give me 24 hours. I'll come back to you. But it sounds really good. Let's go. Rather than having to sit through 25 minutes at the prelim before, before you get to the bottom line. Um, one of the things that you said in the book that was really counterintuitive to me was that we should focus on changing um, behavior rather than minds and you know as someone who comes from a world of you know we get on stage we you know people who start large movements you know we, we, we're here to change minds like change hearts and minds that's our job hearts and minds and to come to this place of no you know it's that's not what we do what we do is we change behavior first 
talk to me about that. Why, why should we focus more on behavior than on minds? That last piece you said is really important. So it's not that we don't want to change minds, but we focus first on behavior because this is the low hanging fruit. And I just had a recent, um, almost a fight with someone in a public forum who is the national fundraising director for a very large environmental organization who was asking my advice about how to get people to care about the environment who don't care about the environment. And the fight that we had was me saying, that is not the best use of your time and your resources and your attention until all the people who care about the environment have been activated, motivated, and are taking all of the action that they can. Because it is so much harder to change people's minds than to change people's behavior. So if you want ultimately action on the environment, this is typically what we want when we're trying to influence people almost all the time. It's ultimately action. So first of all, focus on the people who are willing. <laughs> Motivate and empower and activate the willing who are very rarely doing as much as they could or even as much as they would like to. And then have those people help you motivate the indifferent people who are, and when I say indifferent, maybe the open-minded. They're not already excited, but they're open-minded to the idea. And until you have everyone who is possibly open-minded to this idea on board and taking action, don't worry about the people who disbelieve you, don't like the idea, are resistant, if we're talking about something like a movement. But if we're talking about something like a work team, the challenge is completely different. Because if you have someone who is act an active hater or resistor, and they're going to be vocal, and they're going to be in the room, and they're going to speak up against your idea, I suggest and practice this process that apparently is related to a Japanese idea of nemawashi, which is cultivating the roots. And the idea is that you, when you have a great idea to share in a meeting, you want to have built consensus to the degree that you need to before pitching it in the meeting. So I suggest talking to people who are the powerful decision makers, people who you think would be your allies and supporters, and people who you think will be your detractors or your enemies. And you don't have to talk to all of them. You have conversations in, you have different conversations with each people who are the decision makers, you're asking their advice about the idea, also maybe about the politics and how to help your idea get through. They're great at politics. People you think will be your allies, ask advice about your idea and ask them if they will speak up in favor of your idea in the meeting. And after they've said, yes, they will. And they just might not have thought of doing it if you didn't. But with the resistors, people whose minds you would like to change, you're not assuming that you're going to change their mind about the idea, but you're asking their advice about this idea that you have. You're asking their advice about how to maybe address some shortcomings or obstacles or potential problems. And you're just letting them know uh, that this thing is on the horizon. And what happens when you come to the meeting and you pitch your idea in the group, because you talked to all these people, your idea is better. You took their advice insofar as it was helpful, but the, the detractors don't need to speak up so much 
against your idea because they've already told you what they hate about it. They have also already had a conversation with you where you discussed some obstacles, possible ways to solve them, and if you are the person bringing up their objections, you're showing yourself to be a team leader, team player, and you're saying, and, you know, let's say Agatha is the person who I talked to hates my idea, and, um, and Agatha brought up some important caveats or some risks that we have to watch out for, or this is, you know, it's, it's not without its downsides. And Agatha has mentioned this and that. And I have some ideas about how we can address them, or I'll be looking for ideas about how to address them. I think the benefits outweigh the downsides, but we should be aware that that we also have to contend with these. Then Agatha is included, part of the team. Agatha just doesn't need to be hating on me. So I didn't need to change Agatha's mind, but I've changed Agatha's behavior in this case, by meeting with her privately beforehand and then by saying the things that she would have wanted to say. And in this way, I'm shifting the whole dynamic in the room. I want to talk about the the misconceptions about being a person of influence because I feel like there are many, many, many misconceptions. Um, but one of them, which we've kind of touched on, is people believing that, you know, if someone just understands the facts, they will make the right decision. How do we, you know, firstly, how do we get past that? And then secondly, you know, what do we do in those times when either we can't or we have decided not to give all of the information? How do we, how do we proceed if that's not the way that we go forwards? First of all, if information is all it took, then just about all of us would be fit and healthy and financially secure, right? These things aren't actually mysterious. Information is not the answer. But when we're talking about something like activating someone like you who is not just open-minded but you're willing to take more action than than you're already taking and like I was for a long time these kinds of conversations and especially when people are resistant conversations in isolation very rarely lead to big changes in behavior. So I like to have people be thinking about how conversion happens in a relationship. It doesn't happen in a conversation and it rarely happens in relationships. But you don't have to be the only person in that relationship with the person that you're trying to change their mind. So on the topic of the climate, actually for me, it was a series of years and years of many students and many teaching assistants from the School for the Environment, which is the sister school for my school of management here at Yale, who felt so strongly about the environment that they were taking massive action in their lives. And in my class, we write opinion pieces and publish them. And many students were writing op-eds about the environment. And, and it was baby steps, like a TA who was really excited about narwhals and really fun and she pitched the idea to the rest of our TA team that we do a 30-day plant-based challenge for team narwhal and so we 
decided to be team narwhal we ended up getting narwhal onesie outfits and then we wore them for a bunch of other activities and we we all did this 30-day plant-based challenge and it doesn't mean that i'm now a vegetarian but i eat way less meat than i did before doing this challenge and over time i got persuaded in these relationships to now be someone who cares and is really taking action on the environment. I'm donating half of my profits from this book that I've published, Influences Your Superpower, to 350.org and other groups who are working on the climate crisis. Because now they've persuaded me collectively that the climate is the existential problem that we're all facing. And that for me personally, if I have some skills and some tools to share about interpersonal influence, and whatever resources I have, the best place that I can invest those is to help people who are working on this existential crisis. But any one of those students or teaching assistants wouldn't have thought that they made any progress with me. But it's over time, bit by bit. And that's what real transformative influence typically takes. Even like Tony Robbins, someone like that who can lead people to have these transformational breakthrough experiences, you still need to be working with a coach after if you want those breakthroughs to stick. So transformation happens in relationships, maybe more than one over a long period of time, typically. So your role is less to persuade and convince and more to sow, sow a seed. And then somebody else comes in and sows a seed. In cases like this, where we're talking about something as big as what can we each be doing to address the climate problem? Yeah. Now, the other misconception that you mentioned is that people don't listen to people like me. And I hear that a lot. You know, I call it the the world of twos. You know, I am too old, too young, too experienced, too inexperienced, too, you know, too big, too blonde, too small, uh, too quiet, um, you know, too loud, all of the two stories that we have. How does that become self-fulfilling? Because I know that it does, a self-fulfilling prophecy, but, but how does it become self-fulfilling? When we think that people aren't going to listen to us, we stop speaking up or we never start. And for me, this was very personal because as a child, I was very introverted, very shy. And my experience was that people would talk over me. And I had a crazy nerdy theory that my voice was the same frequency as the ambient sounds of the universe. But the reality was that I was just so quiet that people could hardly hear me when I talked. And what I see when people are asking me about getting more visibility at work or more airtime in class is that after a few experiences where you tried to speak up and then someone spoke over you or your comment just landed flat and then the conversation moved on without addressing it is that we were less likely to speak and there's a huge gap between um, what I call functional introverts and functional extroverts that isn't just a personality difference, 
but this is a difference between cultures and it's a difference in power dynamics where say we talked about if you're practicing another and or speaking another language if you're not fluent in that language you are a functional introvert because the differentiating feature between introverts and extroverts is that introverts think before they speak so you're slower to jump into the conversation and if you have to think of how you're going to say the thing because of the language before you say it then you're a functional introvert and the same thing is true in a hierarchy where those with less power become functional introverts because they need to or they feel that they need to think before they speak so they have a gatekeeper where those who have more power probably should have more of a gatekeeper often but they're very comfortable thinking while they speak so they're functional extroverts and leaders can do everyone a huge service by bringing good ideas out of functional introverts giving them opportunities to speak and there are many different ways that we can do this including things like you know in a meeting going around the room hearing from everybody like cold calling not with gotcha questions but um, asking for people's input rather than just opening up the floor all the time in a large group meeting you can do things like have invite people to just write for a couple of minutes write reflections for a couple of minutes on the thing you want to discuss and then the introverts have gotten the chance to process or you could have people do um, a pair share where they share with a partner whoever's sitting next to them discussing these things these are kinds of things that some teachers do and some savvy executives do them in meetings at work and has it be more helpful. You can invite, solicit feedback or ideas by email. It doesn't have to be that everyone has to speak all the time in every group. But what's important to keep in mind is that introverts' ideas that are not being expressed are better than the extroverts' ideas that are being expressed. It's not necessarily that they're smarter. It's that their gatekeeper makes them hold back. And the extroverts have no gatekeeper. So their, their overall quality of ideas is much lower. And I can really see how that, you know, that becomes its own feedback loop. You know, people don't listen to people like me. So I stop speaking. My gatekeeper gets louder. I start second guessing the words that come out of my mouth. And therefore I contribute less. And, and so on and so on and so forth. Um. I want to bring in a word specifically to this part of the conversation, which is the word charisma. It's, like, it's, it's one of those words that over my career I've had bandied around so much and I've never known what to do with it. It's one of those words I just don't know what to do with it. You know, everybody seems to want it and admire it. No one seems to know what it is. It seems to be the secret ingredients that most people assume that they don't have, which means that they, they are not as influential as they could be. The dominant theory seems to be that it can't be taught. It's innate. It just feels like this bundle of things that you can do nothing about. You can't put your finger on it. Um, and it's wholly unhelpful. And so usually I just try and move it, you know, move it out of the conversation because some of the most influential people I have ever met, some of the most compelling people I have ever seen and worked with are introverts, are people who have gravity rather than charisma, two different things for me people that have a sense of gravity rather than this, you know, huge sense of charisma. How do you define 
charisma and how do you work with I'm just so curious how do you work with this word what have you learned to do with it I'd like to invite listeners to play a game with us and while the conversation goes on between me and Julie for the next couple of minutes be asking your gator brain to just give you some charismatic person might be famous or not and ask yourself what are three qualities of that person that make them charismatic and then we'll get back to the this definition i like you julie heard a lot about charisma and i never intended to study it or teach it but when i was asking people who were coming to me for influence classes and workshops just open-ended question what are the three or what is the one influence skill you would most like to master charisma was the most common thing that came up people want to be charismatic because we know that charismatic people are very influential and then I had exactly the problem that you're talking about which was that there isn't a an accepted behavioral definition of charisma charisma means to people things like well other people pay attention to you they listen to what you say they want to do the things <laughs> well yeah right and and Julie you're very charismatic and you probably have heard this about you too what I found that wasn't as helpful when I started looking into the academic research was a seven-factor model of charisma that's the most accepted academic work on this and it's by a great researcher his name is John Antonakis he's in Switzerland but if you no matter who you are you just can't do seven things at once so I think it's much easier to break it down and organically define what is charisma and now listener dear listener if you've thought of three things that are qualities of that charismatic person I'll ask you to check in and see whether at least two of those three things relate to one of the categories of either confidence or connection. And when I do an exercise like this in a room of tens or even hundreds of people, what I find is about 85% of the characteristics that people name boil down to one of those two traits that it's demonstrating confidence or it's making a connection and what's great about that is that you can do these things these are behaviors that you can take action on you know how to connect with people and you might not feel confident always but there are some clear and simple ways to come across as more confident, which are often like you were talking about before, Julie, about taking things away. And we were talking about mindsets, but even behaviors, right? Just say we're on a stage and we can be so much more charismatic and confident if we're just doing less with our body, right? Just doing so much less, less fidgeting, less walking, so easy to look more confident, easier to make a connection, and doing both of these things at once, confidence and connection happens most easily and directly by just focusing your attention on the other person. So ultimately, charisma can boil down to, can you really put your attention 
on the other person or the group of people you're talking to or the audience. And this is the magic of that electric kind of charisma that some people have talked about, like in the States, Bill Clinton is someone who comes up a lot as a charismatic person. I saw this with Prince most dramatically when I went to a Prince concert. I was so excited to get to see him and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and he finally comes on stage and he takes the mic and I'm sure that he looks directly into my eyes and his first line is I think are we alone and I turned to my hand my my my, my friend Eldar and I said oh my god I think I'm gonna faint and then the woman next to me stranger on the other side just drops down in a dead faint and the paramedics come and they get her and I ask has this ever happened before and they said it's not the first time that electric connection comes from the other person who's listening to you feeling that you are really connected with and paying attention to them i'm sorry i'm still in the prince moment there for a moment um <laughs> and the irony of that you know the irony of that is that the one thing that stops us being connected and therefore charismatic is the voice inside our head. You know, you can't, you can't deeply connect in with another human being when you are spending 60% of your attention listening to the voice inside your head tell you, you know, all the things that you're not, all the reasons that you shouldn't be here, all the reasons that are not going to work, what's on your email, what you've got to do, why you don't have time for this conversation, what, you know, as you said, why the world is not benefiting you in this exact moment in time. You know, all, all these things, the, there is such a direct correlation there to being able to quieten that voice inside your head to the, to the point where you can be with another human being 100% and then hone that skill so that you can f hold 500 people in the same way. You know, there's there's this ability to just shut down the part of you that is, I don't know, in a way self-obsessive or self-flagellating or whatever, whatever it happens to be in that moment. What have you learned about doing that? About quietening that part of you? It's very hard to try to not do something, much easier to do something, right? And in the room of 500 people, the magic happens by connecting one at a time. So the vicarious connection as you connect with one person and then the next and then the next, other people feel it, and which you know as a speaker um, at your level, but very few people do. And especially people like leaders that you and I work with in organizations who don't have a ton of training um, as a professional speaker. What can be tactically particularly hard about this and so you brought up context of you're speaking to 500 people, often there's stage lights that are in your face and you're looking at the audience and you can't actually see the individuals in the audience like Prince, I'm sure could not actually see me, but to still focus your visual attention on the idea of connecting with this one person and then you shift and focus on the idea of connecting with this other person. In a Zoom meeting or an in-person meeting, it can be really helpful to us as the speaker to use other people's names. It helps them connect because you hear your own name and you know this will awaken you from sleep or get your attention across a crowded and loud room. 
So it's helpful for engaging their attention. But for you, when you use other people's names, it reminds you, I'm paying attention to that person. This is about them. This is about Julie. It's not about me. And every time I say your name, I'm feeling that connection to you instead of just going on and on on my own. We call those lighthouses. Um, and I was interviewing actually a, a mentor of mine who you know taught me so much about influence, who really kind of ignited my passion in the space and I have learned so much from for over the years. And I, this idea came from him. And it was the idea of a lighthouse having a, so when you first get on stage or you first go into a room or anywhere where you happen to be nervous and that voice is going off in your head, I shouldn't be here. This is going to go terribly. This didn't work last time. Find your lighthouse and your lighthouse is just one person who seems receptive, who's either smiling or sitting forward, who's got great energy. Talk to them until that voice in your brain calms down and then, you know, talk to somebody else and then talk to somebody else and then eventually widen out to the whole room. But start by, as you exactly as you just said, start by being in connection with one human being and then kind of widen, widen your scope out from there. I love that analogy of the lighthouse. That's so nice. Do you coach people to be the lighthouse also? Do you know what I don't? I don't. And and that's a really interesting idea. You can. It's so cool. You, you And when you do this, it's so, so fun. And I, can I borrow your term of lighthouse? Please, so please. Nice. Take it. It's not actually mine. It's Alan Parker's. Okay, um, Alan Parker. I'm borrowing your yeah. lighthouse term. It's it's so fun to teach people to be doing that. I, I talk about shining and obviously it goes great with a lighthouse. Perfect. To, and so I talk about the speaker shining and teach the speaker to shine. But then I'm also, when we practice it, coaching the audience to shine. And it's amazing when you're practicing and you have a whole group of people in the audience beaming and shining and connecting toward the speaker and it and it helps the speaker be so present and that too helps quiet that voice mm. that you're talking about and you know that doesn't always happen I mean to be in that room would be amazing and I wish you know I wish we we were taught how to receive the ideas and the energy of other people way better than we are. I feel like when we get into an audience environment or when we get into a group environment we often feel like we have full permission to kind of just pull back and observe as opposed to contribute to the energy that's happening in the room. This person's ability to be able to communicate at the highest level and to be able to convince at the highest level, you know, basically treat them as we would want to be treated if we were, if we were stood up there, but that doesn't always happen. I mean, I know a lot of professional speakers, you do too, you know, so many and myself included who have a story of being up on, up on a large stage and, you can see someone asleep in the audience. Like I had, you know, I've had one before where it was somebody's partner. It was the, it was the graveyard shift. It's the morning after, the night before. You're the first on. Someone's partner. They weren't meant to be at the conference. They were just there as a, as a kind of a, a partner pass. They weren't that interesting in the t interested in, in the topic and they were tired. And so, you know, they just kind of folded their hands in front of them, put their head down and basically just took a nap. And what they don't realize is that, you know, from the stage, I, I can see you. And as, as a communicator, you know, your job is not to obsess over that individual human being. 
your job is not to derail yourself and therefore the opportunity of everybody else in this room to get something that they can use because you're obsessing about what's happening for one human being. And I've had so many examples, um, so many examples of those. I give you another one. I was teaching a smaller workshop and there was this guy, he was a really big guy and he just, you know, he had this really kind of severe face and he was sat at the back and he had his arms folded and he just stared at me. It was a full day. He stared at me the whole way through. He said nothing, didn't smile, just completely stared at me. And in my head, I was like, okay, this is just not for him. You know, this, he's not that interested in the content. Um, he's obviously, you know, not engaged with the delivery. This is just, this is obviously not for him. And I'll find my lighthouses. <laughs> I'll find my lighthouses and, I'll, and I will do my best to engage with the people who are engaged in this room. And at the end of the day, I was packing up my cables and I was kind of getting ready to go. And everybody else had gone and he kind of, he was just hovering by the door. And then he came over and he came over, he had this voice like thunder and he came over and he was like, that was the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and I, was, I was crouching on the floor and I was like, oh my God, could you tell your face? Because you just like, I did you say so, that? No, I did not say that, oh. I did not say that but I was thinking that. <laughs> and, and it was just another lesson to go, you know, I don't know what's going on for you. I don't know what's going on in your head. I don't know what situation you're in right now. I don't know what your resting face looks like. <laughs> I don't know if you're waiting for a phone call from a sick loved one. That is not my job. My job here is to hold a room and is to speak to the people who want to be here, the people that want to learn, the people that have something to gain. As you said way back at the beginning, speak to the ones who are willing and do my best with them. And so I think... You know, when we speak to the lighthouses, it was a very long explanation, but when we speak to the lighthouses, it gives us the ability to go, okay, that person might not be that into it and not kind of just go down this rabbit hole obsession of why, what am I doing? What can I do to get this one person who might not be into what we're talking about? And it feeds us and gives us the ability to keep going. But that was, that was a very long explanation for me to back up Alan Parker's theory of the lighthouse, of the lighthouses. And and I'm glad you brought up this this guy with the I don't know what the male version of resting bitch face is. Um but granite face. Because let's call it granite the, face. Granite face. That because lots of times the people who seem checked out are open. They're they're actually open minded. They're not resistant. And so when you've connected with the lighthouses and you feel that things are going well if people who are listening, if you offer a connection to the people who maybe are looking down at their phone or maybe kind of getting a little sleepy looking or granite face, very, very often those people can get engaged. So they're not, they're not usually resistant, but it's not like you would want to spend a whole lot of energy trying to engage them. But when you do engage those people, the rest of the audience feels it. And there can, there can be this exciting uplift. And, and just everybody shine from the audience. Don't be granite face. Just shine. Be a lighthouse. Yeah, be the audience that you would hope to have. I think that's probably a beautiful commitment to make going forward. Just always be the audience for somebody else's courage, the audience for somebody else's ideas, the audience for somebody else's voice that you would hope to have. And yeah. I think that that's, I'm going to take that one away as a reminder from this conversation. Um, 
I can't let you I can't let you go without asking you about the magic question. Because that was one of those moments when I was doing my research where I wrote yes, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Not because um not because I had heard it before, but because I realized what a game changer this one question could be. So talk to me when, you know, when, what is the magic question when it comes to being more influential? And for those of you who haven't read the book, there are, you know, tens of these game changers in this book. This just happens to be one of my particular favorites. It's one of my particular favorites too. And loads of people love it because it is so incredibly easy. It's one of the easiest influence techniques that you can use. The question is very simply, what would it take? And to illustrate it, I'll share a story to have it sink in to your concrete gator mind. Gator is very visual, so you can imagine this. And this is a story that an American feminist named Gloria Steinem told when she came to my hometown a few years ago. She was working on the problem of sex trafficking. She was speaking about it, writing about it, going to conferences, and she went to a conference in Zambia and on sex trafficking, how to prevent it, alleviate it handle it. After the conference, she visits a village in a rural part of the country near a game preserve, middle of nowhere. And the previous year, three young women had been lost to sex trafficking from this village and no one had heard from them again. Gloria Steinem sits down with a group of women on a tarp in the middle of a barren field and she asks them the magic question. She asks, what would it take to make sure no one from this village gets sex trafficked again. And they told her an electric fence. An electric fence? They said when the corn reaches a certain height, the elephants come and they eat it. They trample it. We have nothing for families to eat. They're desperate. They're starving. We have nothing to sell in the market. We have no money to send our kids to school. And Gloria Steinem says, okay, listen, if I can raise the money for an electric fence, will you clear the field and will you build it? They say, yes, she does, they do. The way she tells it, she comes back a few years later, the, there is a huge crop of corn and no one has been sex trafficked from that village since they got the fence. To me, this is a great story to illustrate the power of the magic question because the magic question works in so many ways on so many levels and some obvious, some not. First of all, it's respectful. So Gloria Steinem was supposed to be the expert, but she doesn't come in saying, hey ladies, here's what you need to do to stop sex trafficking in your village. She's asking them what it will take. And she's listening. And she is showing, as you do when you use the magic question, that you're not just trying to get someone to do something, but you're open potentially to their influence and you're also shifting their mindset from wanting to all of us have this natural resistance to be told being told what to do to collaborative problem solving and we love that very often you'll get answers that you couldn't have thought of like an electric fence if you didn't know that it's not just a sex trafficking problem it's not just a poverty problem but for this village it's a human wildlife conflict problem and then as you get a roadmap that leads to success, which very often you do, not always, but more often than you think, when 
you have followed that roadmap or when those things have happened, the coolest, I think, and least obvious part of the magic question is that in giving you the roadmap, the other person or people have essentially committed to supporting that outcome if the roadmap gets followed. So my interpretation of the situation in this village with the electric fence is that it wasn't the electric fence that prevented sex trafficking. It was the women of the village who asked for the electric fence when they got it, who made sure that no one from that village would be sex trafficked. And those women, by the way, did keep meeting after this initial time. They formed a chicken farm and a tailoring operation with the women of the neighboring village, and they're still meeting, and they call themselves Waka Simba, which means strong women. I, just, I love that story. I love that story. Um, you know, that whole what, what would it take question, like you say, you know, it makes it, you get an answer you wouldn't expect. It's often easier than you would expect. And you've also got implicit buy-in that if you can, you know, if you can meet those conditions, then, you know, it's a green light here. We can, we can move forwards. I'm just thinking, going back to parenting again, because so much of, what we learn and what we do in influence, you know, is road tested with the people that we love in our lives and how important it would be to teach that question. And very powerful to use it with kids as well. And they will then definitely use it on you. By the way, you can teach this to everyone. You can use it again and again, almost any situation, even people like kids who you've taught the magic question to, and your daughter is going to come to you and be like, Hey mom, what would it take? And you'll be like, Ah, the magic question. <laughs> and the same thing with her. When you say, hey, sweetie, what would it take? And she'd be like, oh, mom, the magic question. But because it's respectful, it's, it's still useful. It's helpful. It's not like a trick that when somebody knows what you're doing, they'll be like, aha, you won't get me. They'll be like, oh, I recognize the magic question. Okay, here's what it would take. Let's talk about it. And you've got to be willing to receive the answer. You know, you have to be willing to receive whatever comes back. Yes, you don't have to be willing to do whatever comes back, though. Right? So the magic question isn't a magic wand. It's not that whoever answers gets whatever they want, but it's a collaborative conversation. And and listeners, you can use this for small, small things like getting, you know, your kid to, I don't know, clean out the sink after brushing their teeth or big things like policy changes. And um, many people coming through my workshops have used the magic question. But one example is a design director from the New York Times wanted to persuade the New York Times to cover freezing eggs or sperm as a health benefit for their employees. And in the United States, all y'all know we have terrible health <laughs> insurance issues. We don't have good health care coverage. And um, that kind of coverage is something that only a few tech companies offered their employees. And it took a year of conversations where Dalit Shalom is her name. She had conversations again and again with leaders and HR and the benefits team asking what would it take for the New York Times to make this happen. And after one year, the New York Times became the first media company to offer this health benefit to their employees goes back to what you were saying before about, you know, conversation after conversation after conversation, you know, small win, small seed, planting a seed, inviting in your collaborators to get to when it's something as large as that to get to an eventual long-term when playing the long game 
Um, my last question, I would usually ask, you know, what's, what's one thing that people can do, but I want to flip that as a result of this conversation. And I want to ask you, what's one thing that you're doing right now to increase, you know, either to get over an influence block that you have or to extend your skills and influence could be out of your side of your comfort zone, inside of your comfort zone. What's one thing you're doing now to tap further into your own influence superpower? Cause you're pretty super powered at the moment. One fun thing and one serious thing. The serious thing I'm doing is going to therapy and I'm super excited about it because it is incredibly helpful. Um, anyone who's thinking about it, make sure you interview enough people to find someone who's a good fit for you. Um, my therapist is amazing and this helps me just get through some of the many of the blocks that I have are unconscious and internal and it it's not things that are easy for me to surface on my own so it's really helpful to have someone else um, to work on that with me but then the second thing that I love to do anytime to have opportunities to play in the non-gatekeeper space is dancing like hip-hop dancing or improv and anyone who hasn't taken an improv class I encourage you to try it out you don't have to be funny in fact if you think you're funny you might have even a harder time at improv than someone who doesn't think that they're funny because the thing that's funny in improv is just practicing getting to the space of no gatekeeper and we are all so weird and so fun when we get to that place so improvise that's my jam thank you for asking that oh so much in both of the, both of those things yes to therapy and yes to interviewing I, it's a really practical point and it may feel off topic but you know i've come across someone who's gone oh i did therapy but you know it didn't quite work out for me like there's gonna you're gonna go through three or four if not more before you find the right the right person to talk to so if that journey is appealing to you know that like anything else like dating there's going to be an intimate relationship you're going to go on a few first dates so <laughs> my very small piece of earned wisdom on that one um and the improv you know improv is this even just that magic line from improv which is yes and you know learning not to block the ideas of other people and you know that's a whole conversation just just on its own uh Zoe thank you so much I've got still got a ton of questions that we didn't get to I would love to have you back another time but it has been a genuine genuine pleasure to have you on the show you're such a delight Julie thank you so much Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. 
Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.